Good morning. You know, the thought occurred to me as we were singing just a moment ago, and appreciate David for the fine job he did today. You know, God's people have always been a a singing people. Certainly they've been, hopefully, a praying people. But as we look at the early church, we see how instructions were given for how that's to be done. In Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16, for example, and we find the early church who faced a lot of opposition, a lot of problems, a lot of difficulties, not unlike how it is for us in our world, and they gave themselves to song. In fact, you look at the Old Testament people, and they had songs that were, they had a songbook that we know as the book of Psalms. Whenever they were struggling and in distress, that may have been one of the only times in Psalm 137 when they didn't sing songs. They said, how can we sing songs to our God in a foreign land? But the characteristic of them was that they were singing people. Whatever we can do to strengthen and encourage our ability to sing and and to be better at that is what we should do. I, I was impressed with the number of folks who came out on a Friday night and sang 50-something people. And it was such an encouragement to uh, sing some new songs, to sing some uh, old faithfuls that we know, and, and to just spend, an, I think it was an hour and a half in singing. The only thing that could sweeten and exceed that was, and we appreciate her example so much, is that Becca made the, the decision to be sure. She had been concerned about a, a baptism previously, and She wanted to remove all doubt. And as we sang after that, blessed assurance. That's something God wants all of us to have. And I'm sure as you talk to Becca, she would tell you she feels that calm assurance in making sure about that. At the end of this lesson, we'll have an invitation song. And we would love nothing more than for you to feel that blessed assurance that comes in having obeyed our Lord. And so I hope you'll think about that as we go through our lesson today. If you have your Bibles open in Proverbs chapter 4, if you'll keep it there, that's where we're going to spend the majority of our time today. We're going to be talking about an image and something that Solomon does in this text that's masterful. But as we think about that, I'm reminded of a story that was told about a missionary in the African jungle some years ago. And he was trying to make his way through the jungle to a destination. As he went deeper and deeper into the vines and in the grasses, he saw that the trail disappeared. And he struggled along the way until finally he found a native small hut. And he knocked on the door and asked as the man came to the the door, can you help me out of the, the bush? The A native man went out the door immediately and the missionary was on his heels. And for an hour, they were cutting through the dense grasses and the vines and the missionary began to be worried. And he says, are you sure that this is the way? There is no path. And the African looked over his shoulder and chuckled and he said, Buana, in this part of the jungle, there is no path. I am the path. When I think about what we see in in the Word of God, I'm comforted by the idea that even though it can seem like a jungle out there and we don't know the way to go, that Jesus reaches across the ages and He says, I am the path. The way He puts it is, I am the way. In John chapter 14 and verse 6. And Peter adds to that and his writing even more comfort when he says that we were left an example that we should follow in his steps. First Peter chapter 2 and verse 21, that example is Jesus. If you turn throughout the Bible on every page, you have guidance. You have a way to know the way as you read in Scripture. 
In 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16, Paul says to his son in the faith, he says, all uh, scripture is God-breathed and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped, furnished unto every good work. And having that in his background, he says in the next chapter, I have finished the course. This word will give us all that we need to be able to successfully navigate the difficult road of this life. When you come to the book of Proverbs, it's interesting to see that our text, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 20 through 27, is, uh, finds itself in a broader context. And the broader context is Proverbs chapter 1 through Proverbs chapter 9. And in every major section of that particular part of the book, almost a third of the book, you have uh, Solomon beginning each major section by exhorting his son... He does this by looking back at his own heritage, at at his own father, David, and what he learned from him, both good and bad. He could say to him over and over again, my son, and as he does, he lays out a path. He does it three times in Proverbs chapter 4, and this is the third section where he says, my son. And I think about this. Who would care more about the spiritual success of a person than their parents? And so here's Solomon saying, listen, I'm going to share some things with you that are going to help you. And if you notice the the great job that was done in our Bible reading today, in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 20 through 27, you see what this paragraph is about. It's about health to the body or to the flesh, verse 22. It's about the life, verse 22 and 23. It is about the way and about the path, verse 26. What Solomon is saying is you've got a road to travel inevitably. No matter which route you take, you've got to get through this life along the road. So what Solomon says is, is I want to help you to do that successfully. And if you'll notice very carefully, what he does is that in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 20 through 27, he uses some imagery. He uses a metaphor. It really is a whole body experience to travel the road of life. Will you notice that with me? How do you stay the course? How do you successfully get to the ultimate destination of eternity? In the first place, staying the course involves your ears. You notice that back up at the beginning of the paragraph in Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 20. What he says is, give ears to my sayings. You know, the ear is a phenomenal part of God's creation. You realize that the average ear can pick up sounds as low as 20 hertz and as high as 20,000 hertz? As you consider the construction of the ear, the uh, middle ear has such a small circumference about the size of a pencil eraser and yet it is able to pick up that uh, spectrum of sound. The three smallest bones in the human body are found in the middle ear. They are the anvil, the stirrup, and the hammer. That's their common names. And together they are about the size of a penny. And you know, we fret sometimes that at some point we stop growing this way. Maybe we continue to grow this way. But did you know there's one part of you that continues to grow? If you live to be 130 years old, your outer earlobes are going to continue to grow till the day that you die. And then there's how you hear. It's fascinating to me. It's all these tiny little hairs down inside of the ear that work together to help somebody to hear better. And judging from some of our ears, we might ought to be better listeners, don't you think? 
But as you look at what Solomon is saying is he says, give ear. It's an idiom. It means to listen. It means to hear. And he uses that idiom throughout the book. You can go to Proverbs chapter 2 and verse 2 and Proverbs chapter 5 and verse 1 and Proverbs 15 and verse 31 and Proverbs 18 and verse 15 and many other ways. He says, I want you to listen. As we go down the road of life, Solomon knew it. We're going to be hearing someone. We're going to be listening to some voice that's telling us this is the way that you ought to go. And they're not going to tell you where they're coming from as they deliver their message. We've got to be discerning. That's why Solomon says to his son, give ear to my sayings. You realize that you're going to be exposed to the nihilistic philosopher. The nihilistic philosopher says that life has no meaning and has no intrinsic value to it. The existential philosopher comes along behind that and says, what's the use of living if life has no inherent purpose? The hedonistic philosopher comes along and says, pleasure and happiness is the only intrinsic value. The rationalistic philosopher comes along and says that you find knowledge through your feelings and your thoughts, not through empirical evidence. And listen, uh, when we talk about faith, the kind of faith that God wants us to have, it's not just some leap of faith. Hebrews 11 verse 1 says, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And then the relativistic philosopher comes along and he says, there's no absolute truth, there's no moral facts, it depends on the situation. Solomon says there is a solid foundation that you can listen to, that you can look to, and it will help you to stay the course In the New Testament, Jesus says specifically in Luke 8 and verse 18, take heed how you hear. But almost 400 times in the New Testament, you have an emphasis on us hearing the right thing. So we think about our Father in heaven. He would say to us as His children, I want you to give ear to my sayings and I will talk you down this road that I call difficult and narrow, but at the end of it there is eternal life. Are we going to stay the course? How do we stay the course? It's a whole body experience. It involves the ears, but it also involves the eyes. If you look through the paragraph, you'll see all of these sight words. In fact, you'll find the word sight. You'll find the the, the, uh, idea of eyes and looking and gaze. And throughout the paragraph, he's saying to him, I want you to keep your eyes open as you're walking down this road. How many of you ever saw the Apollo 13 movie? Maybe some of you here this morning can remember the Apollo 13 mission. And as they were uh, trying to go to the moon, as previous missions had done, there was a, a disaster on day six, and they had to abandon that objective. And they were doing everything they could just to get back. And, and so you might remember, as you, uh, either from the movie or from the events that took place, they had to decide how they were going to do that. They had to cut off the onboard computer and steer manually. They had to do a 39-second burn of the main engine. And in order to be able to do that successfully, it was determined by Jim Lovell that they had to find a fixed point of view out in space that they could see through their tiny window and aim toward that and stay on course with that. And they chose, as you might remember, the earth. Their ultimate destination And so for 39 agonizing seconds, they had to steer very carefully, keeping their destination in view. 
And because of that, they avoided disaster. I find it ironic that our task is the exact opposite. We are already on earth. And we're trying to make our way to heaven. And God wants us to keep that goal in view and not to be distracted by this earth. It's so easy for it to happen. Solomon knew that, even in his day. And so he says to his son, I want you to keep your focus. And thus he uses this imagery. And it seems to me that as he tells him to keep his eyes on the right things, that he's telling him to do three things. He is saying, first of all, I want you to look over. Proverbs 4 and verse 23. Watch. There's another one of the sight words. Watch over your heart with all diligence. And we'll say more about that in just a moment. But we have got to look over the path that we're taking and say, as we examine ourselves, am I heading toward God? Am I growing closer to Him in the walk that I'm on? How do I know that? It begins in my heart. And again, we'll say more about that in, in just a few minutes. But then he says, look ahead. Look at verse 25. Isn't it hard to do that? We are bombarded by the tyranny of the urgent, the here and the now. It's all we can do sometimes to get through a day. But what we are supposed to do is to look ahead and to see the ultimate end of all things. I look at the Apostle Paul and he's a great example of this. He says, I do not consider myself to have laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting those things that are behind and reaching forward to those things which are before, I press toward the goal of the upper call of of God in Christ Jesus. Paul was saying, I'm seeing the long game. I'm seeing the end game. I'm going to look ahead and not just get caught up because, you know, so often we think that we want to be a certain way and that's being determined not by our big goals but by the day by day. And so Solomon balances that out. He says, not only do you look over your heart, not only do you look ahead, but you've also got to look down. Verse 26, ponder the path of your feet. I can't tell you how many times I've tripped and fallen when I was out running. And every single time, whether it's ice or uneven pavement, the reason is the same. It's because I wasn't looking down. How do you reconcile those two things? That we're to be looking at the ultimate, but we're also to be looking at each step that we take. Each step that we take is leading us to that ultimate destination. It's helping us to form the proper goals. And the Hebrews writer sums it up for us perfectly when he says, "Um, Wherefore, seeing that we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily entangles us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, Fixing our eyes on Jesus. That means to give one's attention without distraction. It's hard not to be distracted. I appreciate so much the beautiful prayer that we prayed this morning. And it's so important for us as we are concerned about our country, things that are going on. Whether we're talking about the virus or we're talking about events in Haiti or we're talking about the events in Afghanistan. And these things are important. They represent souls. They represent people who are suffering and struggling. And alongside of that, as it moves us to share the gospel with people around us, we've got to give attention to our own lives. Look at our souls and to make sure we're on the proper course. But then third, to stay on course, it requires our hearts. As Solomon speaks to this, he says basically it's a matter of two things. If our heart is going to be, and by the way, in verse 21 and 23, when the heart is mentioned, it's the richest imagery that's used for the total inner being. It's all that we are. It's our thoughts, our feelings, who we really are inside. 
We're not necessarily on the outside what we are on the inside. And sometimes that is that there are things that we're hiding that we're struggling with that people don't know outside. Sometimes it's sin problems that characterize our lives despite what people see on the outside. Solomon is dealing with all of this. And he says, staying on course involves your heart in two ways. Number one, you've got to put the right things in your heart. And what he focuses on in verse 21 is, is uh, truth and wisdom. You put truth and wisdom in your heart. That's the right thing and it will help you as you face the struggles and opposition that are inevitable. And then you've got to keep the wrong things out of your heart. Verse 23. He says, watch it again, watch over your heart with all diligence for from it flows the springs of life. Longtime U.S. Senate chaplain Peter Marshall tells the story about a gentle old man who lived in a village in the uh, Alps uh, above the, the eastern slope of the Alps. And he was hired by a young town council many years ago to be the keeper of the springs. There were pools of water up from the town, and it was his job to remove the debris, the leaves and the, br- the branches and the silt that might disrupt the flow. He did his job faithfully, regularly, and competently. And as the result of his making sure that the pools of water were kept clean, the water was able to flow down into that village. And as a result of that, it was a crystal clear spring. And swans would would, uh, glide gracefully through there. And uh, tourists would come and make their place there. And the, the farms were very cleanly irrigated. And the restaurants had picturesque views. He did that work day after day and years passed. And at a semi-annual meeting of the town council, they came together. And as they looked over the budget, one of the council members said, What is this line item? Who is this keeper of the spring? How do we know that he's doing any good at all? We don't need him anymore. And by unanimous vote, they voted to dismiss the services of the keeper of the spring. And for several weeks, nothing changed. But then as early fall came, the leaves began to fall from the trees and fall into the pool of water. And then not long, as weather began to get harsher, the branches fell down into that pool of water and it began to choke the flow of the water coming down into the town. It wasn't long after that that one of the villagers looked and he saw the yellowish-brown tint of the water and in a few days it was even darker. And in about a week he looked and there were fil- they looked and there were filmy patches of water along certain stretches. And then the, the, the wheels of the grist mills began to slow and some of them began to stop. And the, the fingers of sickness and disease reached deep into the village. And the humiliated, embarrassed council had an emergency meeting in which they confessed their gross error in judgment, and they reached out and they pleaded with the keeper of the springs to come back. And he did. And it wasn't long before the waters were clean again. You know what Marshall was illustrating? He was illustrating what happens down in our hearts. Oh, it was Jeremiah that said that the heart is deceitful above all else. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17 and verse 9. We have got to make sure that we keep the right things in our heart and to keep the wrong things out of our heart if we're going to stay on course. We may be making the right steps right now on the outside, but if our hearts are not right, we're going to veer off course. It's inevitable because the heart is required to stay on course. But then fourth, I want you to notice with me that staying the course also requires 
the mouth. Nothing can get us off course faster than this. You think about how often and how many ways. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 through 21, there is a catalog of activities known as the lusts of the flesh. And there are other passages like Colossians chapter 3, and it talks about that we're risen with Christ, we're to live a new way, but then there's these impediments to us living the, the right way. There's a focus on the behavior in the first part of Colossians 3, but then there's as many verses just on the mouth as on the body. Our mouths can get us in trouble through lying, through gossip, through outbursts of anger, through discouraging speech. Just about every deed of the flesh intersects with the misuse of the tongue. Now Solomon focuses especially on devious and destructive or perverse speech. And there's two different words that are used there in verse 25. But both of them are synonyms in that what they mean is to make crooked what is straight. It means to turn, to push in a different direction. And what Solomon is saying is you will get off course if you misuse your mouth. And that's why Solomon would say, or rather Paul would say, that we are to give so much thought to the speech that we use. He says, let your words be seasoned, uh, be with grace rather, as though seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer every man. Colossians 4 and verse 6. Gossipy speech that can separate, divide and distance those who were once close. Lying speech that can lead others to go astray from the truth. Uh, That speech which is railing and angry. That shows the self-destruction of the person who is uttering those words out of control. There are hypercritical words that can discourage the good works of others. There's hypocritical speech that can cause the cause of Christ to suffer at the mouths of those who use that speech. Solomon is saying what James would say in James chapter 3. You know, you go back into chapter 1 where the tongue is first mentioned. And James says, if there's anyone among you who seems to be a religious man and bridles not his tongue, this person's religion is worthless. And so he uses all those graphic images in James chapter 3 that an uncontrolled tongue is set on fire by hell. It shows hypocrisy at disgusting levels. It's a, uh, it is full of deadly poison. We want to stay on course. Solomon says to stay on course, it involves your mouth. But then he also gives us one more image. He says that staying the course involves your feet. This, when he uses this imagery, he's talking about your general course of life, your walk of life. You know, Paul uses that idea of walking as a a means of saying your behavior as a Christian in the second part of Ephesians. But Solomon mentions it in two verses. There was a very overweight man, an underactive man, who was a thoughtful man. Every day he would go buy his favorite donut shop and he would buy two dozen donuts and he would give it to the employees so that they could enjoy it during their morning break. But somehow he always got three or four himself. And as a result of this, not surprisingly, when he went to the doctor and had his physical, doctor said, you've got to make some major changes. And asking about what was going on, his worst offense, it seemed, was the three or four donuts every day. So he made a change. 
It made him less popular with the employees at work. It also required him to find a different way to work because that route went right by the donut shop. And he was doing pretty good. And then one day, you know how this goes, if you ever tried to be on a diet, he really wanted a donut. So he began to reason with himself. And he said, if it's God's will for me to have a donut, when I drive by the donut shop, there'll be a place to park right in front of the shop. And there was. After the fifth turn around the block. This man would have told you this is the providence of God, this is the will of God, but what he did was he set himself up for an opportunity for failure. Solomon says to his son, I don't want that to happen to you. I don't want you to set yourself up for failure, and it requires your feet to go in the right way. And so he says there's there's four things about that path that he wanted his son to take. It's a studied path. He says, ponder the path of your feet. Don't just kind of respond impulsively. Give forethought to it. He says throughout the Old Testament what he says in Haggai specifically, consider your ways. Haggai 1, 5 and 7. And it's also a sure path. He says, ponder the path of your feet and your ways will be established. That word way, uh, established, is a very interesting word. It's found almost 400 times in the Hebrew language in the Old Testament. But Hebrew words often have elastic meanings. They're used in more than one way. Those, those one word can be used in a lot of different ways. And so this word's the same way. That word could mean to create, uh, as in forming the, the man from the dust of the ground. It, it can speak of directing as an arrow to a target. It could speak of founding, like one founds a city. But it's the first way that Solomon uses that word in Proverbs chapter 4 in verse 26. And it's the same way that the psalmist Asaph uses it in Psalm 73, 23 and 24. When he talks about if you watch the way of your heart, your ways will be established. And the one who does this will not be thrown headlong because it is the Lord who holds his hand. I want you to think about that imagery. That as you ponder the path of your feet, your way will be established. You know another way of putting that is the Lord will hold your hand. We love that idea. We sing about it all the time. Blessed Jesus, hold my hand. Hold to God's unchanging hand. I hold to the hand of my Savior and King. There is a way that is right and it cannot be wrong. And it's the way that is maintained when we hold on to the hand of our God. It's also a straight path. He says, turn not to the right hand or to the left. Let me ask you a question. Which is worse, to make laws for God or to break laws that God established? It's a trick question to see if you're still awake at 1020. That's not, there's no right answer to that. At least that's not the right answer to say either or. Deuteronomy 5.32 says, you don't add to his word, you don't take away from his word. God doesn't need our help to add things to his word that he has not put on us. And God also doesn't want us to take it on ourselves to say, I know God said that, but I think I know a better way. So what happens is, if we will ponder the path of our feet, our ways will be established. We won't turn to the right hand. We won't turn to the left hand. We will stay on biblical center. That's helpful for us as a church, and it's helpful for us as individuals. And so as we look at this, it's also a sanctified path. Turn your foot from evil. I don't know how much of you, how much of the news that you watch 
You know, one of the news stories that's been prevalent is uh, the rising crime in our nation. And, and, you know, one city that seems to keep coming up over and over again is the city of Chicago. There have been over 2,000 shootings this year. And one demographic that has also been hit hard has been children. 250 children in Chicago have been shot this year. 32 of them died. The last one was last Sunday. A seven-year-old girl named Serenity Broughton was killed. And her six-year-old sister, Aubrey, last I heard, was hanging on for her life. When you think about the rising violence in places like Chicago, in New York City, in Washington, D.C., does it cause you, if you think about those cities, to think about yourself in a certain way? If somebody gave you the opportunity, an all-expenses-paid trip to some of those places, a lot of us would say, no, no, thank you. I'm concerned about my safety. It's, it's not safe. Solomon is trying to give us that picture. But it's not physical death. It's spiritual death. I want you to recognize the evil that's in the world and turn your foot from that. Don't walk down that path. When we were kids, it, uh, Mom used to sing us a song. I imagine, I don't know if, I don't, didn't hear it in, uh, in Vacation Bible School this year. don't know if you sing it in your Bible classes for the little kids. But that, that song goes, Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little minds, what you think. Oh, be careful, little mouths, what you say. Oh, be careful, little feet, where you go. I dare say that a lot of us older people need to be singing that song too. You know what the chorus says? Teaching us from the smallest age, for the Father up above is looking down in love. Nobody wants us to make the destination more than our Heavenly Father. And so he providentially preserves his word for us in just that one paragraph. Solomon says it's a whole body experience. Four boys. It was in the spring of the year. They were in their senior year. They decided that spring fever was too hard to suppress. And so they colluded together that they were going to skip their morning classes. And they all jumped in their buddy's car and they drove off. And they had a good old time. They came back for their afternoon classes. And they had the same teacher they'd had in the morning for that afternoon class. And they were very relieved when she stood in front of them and she said, uh, as they said, we had a flat tire. She said, well, you missed a quiz this morning. I'd ask you to take your seat, pull out your paper and your pens. And they did, and she was still smiling so pleasantly. And she began to ask the question. She said, question number one, which tire was flat? They were so focused on the joy ride, they didn't think about the destination. Solomon is saying, and he'll say it throughout Proverbs, he'll say it in Ecclesiastes, he'll say there is so much foolishness in this world that can pull us off course. And you'll wind up being where you don't want to be. How do you make sure that you get where you truly want to go? Stay on course. It starts with getting on course. I believe in a crowd this size that there are those who have not yet gotten on the course. Listen, not the Church of Christ course. Not my course. Not the elders course. But God's course. I've heard it and I've said it over and over again. It doesn't matter who's right. It matters what's right. And what's right is what God's Word says 
The only answer that matters is what does the New Testament say about how you get on course. We can't fight that without fighting God himself. He says, respond to my grace by believing that Jesus is my son. Mark 16, 16. Repenting of sins, Acts 2, 38. And being baptized to have those sins washed away, Acts 22, 16. Have you done those things? And for that reason... If not, whether publicly in this invitation song period of time or as Becca did the other night, quietly into the side, we want to help you to do that. And if you're a child of God and you've gotten off course and you want to get back on course, let me plead with you, plead with all of us to honestly look into our hearts and to make sure that That path that we're taking is in the light and not in darkness. If this is your invitation song, we would encourage you to come right now as we stand and sing.